0: Good evening. How are we doing tonight? We're all feeling very Catholic because everybody just cleared out the first five rows in every section. Move back. I understand. No worries. Um, before we get started, as always, let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this evening for this opportunity to come together to dive deeper into our faith, to dive deeper into our understanding of why, why you've called us, why you love us, and how we are called to live in our lives. We pray that you may bless our time together, that you may help us to grow as you have called us to, that you may watch over all of our catechists, all of our students this evening, young and old alike, that you may bless our time with many opportunities for grace, mercy, and compassion. We ask all these things in your Son's name as we pray in the words that our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, so far uh, this year, we talked um, a lot last semester about faith. Um, We started Hope right before Christmas and are really kind of wrapping up Hope. I mean, not having hope, but the, the virtue of hope, talking about it, um, and kind of springboarding into um, that third and the kind of central focus of the three theological virtues, that virtue of love. But I want to wrap up um, kind of with the conclusion paragraph um, that we got from the book when it talks about hope to kind of springboard into talking about the virtue of love. The virtue of hope, or the lack of the virtue of hope, reveals itself in our attitudes towards life and the world, in our relationship with other people. Ultimately, hope is rooted in our relationship with God and our openness to God's love. To love God is to have hope that God will be there if we trust that he loves and cares for us beyond the boundaries of the present moment, even beyond the limits of space and time. Better than hoping for anything from the Lord Besides his love, let us place all our hope in his love itself. This hope is as sure as God himself. So, as we delve into the virtue of love, the reason why we talk about it kind of chronologically, and the author of our, the book that we've been going through talks about it chronologically as the third, is because it's the one that's the easiest. But at the same time, it's the one that's kind of the heart and the bedrock of faith, it's the heart and bedrock of hope. It's the thing that even when St. Paul says, faith, hope, love, love remains, it's kind of the driving force behind all of the other virtues, specifically the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. But behind any virtue that God offers to us, behind that is this root um, value and this root virtue of hope, or this root virtue of love, sorry. And so I want to read from Scripture, from John's 21st chapter, Uh, Verses 15 and on on When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you, When you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. When he had said this, he said to him, follow me. So when talking about the virtue of love, I like to start off with this gospel passage in a very particular and specific way. Because at the heart of the virtue of love is forgiveness. We hear this gospel, I think it's once every three years, if I remember correctly, once every three years, and preach on it and talk about it a lot. But many times, I think we forget it in our own daily lives. That Jesus asks three different times, Do you love me? And I think he asked that question of each and every one of us each and every day and each and every moment of every day, because our actions many times speak louder than our words. But in this gospel passage, the three questions of Christ to Peter have a very sacramental nature to them, have a very forgiving nature to them. Because remember, when we look at what happens just a few chapters before this in all of the four gospels, we see that all of the apostles, all of the disciples, do what? When Christ is arrested, they all abandon him. And Christ told them at the Last Supper, this would happen. And what did Peter say? Never. I will never abandon you. And what does Christ say to him? Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. That number of three signifying perfection in the um, Jewish context at that time. That you perfectly denied me. Not once, not twice, but three times. So after the resurrection, what does Christ do? He goes to him and offers him, for every time that he denied him, a time to repent. And that is really at the heart of the, I keep wanting to say gospel value because that's what we call it, at McGinnis. But behind the gospel virtue, the theological virtue of love, really is forgiveness. Because that's many times the crux of why we struggle to love each other. We struggle to love each other because we struggle to forgive each other. But the definition of love, given to us by God, not given us to us by the world, the definition of love is the total self-sacrifice of one for another, expecting nothing else in return. You've probably heard this before because I preach about it every Sunday. But I preach about it every Sunday because it's easy to hear those words. It's easy to sometimes even conceptualize what that could mean. But how do we put it into practice? How do we truly, as Christ says, lay down our life for another? He shows us that opportunity and gives us that opportunity many times in life, but we allow sometimes that opportunity to go by. We don't want to love, we want to be loving. In fact, one of the uh, questions at the school when I was at the uh, McGinnis, a lot of the questions were, "Why does the church care about who I love?" Now, normally, they're talking about in a relationship, because they're well, if a man loves a man and a woman loves a woman, what's to stop that? I said, "Well, I don't disagree with that premise, with the caveat of true, authentic love. Who does the church tell you to love?" everybody. What the church tries to limit is who you have sex with. They are not mutually exclusive. And that's part of the struggle that we have in our society is that we attach irregular definitions to proper words. Too many of our young people, when they hear the word love, they hear sexual relationships. And yes, that is one of the three types of love between the filial love, the love of agape, and the love of, I knew I should have written this down, agape, filial, and eros. Eros, agape, and filial are the three types of love. One of them being the sexual love of intercourse. One of them being the love of that self-sacrifice. And one of them being that loving, how do we represent the body of Christ? And so, The struggle is that society has focused so much on one part that it leaves behind the most important part, that when we look at love as just a sexual contract, when we look at sex as just a sexual contract, we miss out on the beauty of what the actual virtue of love offers to us. That Christ loves us, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love us so much that he gave everything for us. In our um, the last two days for daily mass, we've had our first reading from the epistle to the Hebrews. And there's a line in that um, reading that is so pertinent, I think, when, when we talk about what it means to have truly this love. What it means for us to truly... Praise so much so that it hurts. Um, I'm pulling it up on my phone is what I'm doing. Brothers and sisters, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You have also forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as children. My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son. Acknowledges. I think it's important for us that many times we think that people aren't loving because they don't give us what we want, when we want, how we want it. But to truly be loved by someone is to be formed after not ourselves, after not the world, but after He who is love, after God. But as kids, we learned if you do something wrong, slap on the wrist, you're disciplined, you're told, don't do that. The problem is we rarely say why we shouldn't do something. Because as kids, we don't know the difference between right and wrong. In fact, that's why the church and society has basically said the age of reason where we can understand right from wrong is around the age of seven or eight. Now, for some people, that's a struggle. Because there are some people at the age of 75 that can't seem to realize right from wrong. There are some people at the age of three that can sometimes contextualize what it means to be right or wrong. Good or bad, many times, is how we look at that in our lives. But our experience of love, our experience of discipline, differs, and so our outlook on the world, many times, is different based on how we saw discipline as children. I was not a happy child. I was disciplined a lot, because, for a lack of a better way to put it, I was kind of a little four-letter word. (laughs) I didn't like to listen, I pushed the boundaries, and a lot of it was because I was curious and no one would ever tell me, not just no, because they would always tell me no, but they could never say, why not? In fact, that was the most common conversation and fight that I had at home. Don't do that, why? Because I said so, but why did you say so? Because I'm mom. Okay, but how does that justify you saying so? Because I'm in charge. Okay, but why can't I do this? And that is part of my struggle with how I live, even as an adult sometimes. I have to get to the question behind the discipline of, why it, what did I do wrong? Why is it wrong? And is it really wrong? And behind that is really kind of the question of, how does it help me to or not to embrace God's love? Because that is, again, that self-sacrificial love that um, God offers to us. The problem is we are in a, post, a post-modern world, a post-Christian world, even a post-apocalyptic world. Not in that we've had an apocalypse, but in an understanding of the end times. That when we look at society, really from 1955 until now, and look at all of humanity prior to 1955 or 1960 or so, life was lived differently. In fact, I was having this conversation um, in the office today about, I always find it interesting in history classes in school, we never got past World War II. Did anybody ever get past World War II? Some of you guys were alive during World War II. You weren't, I know. Um, but, but, but that's part of the struggle is we don't know our recent history. And so we don't really know why the world is how it is today. There's that old saying, learn from your history or you're doomed to repeat it. And repeating the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, as we talk about all the time, is a definition of insanity. So if we don't learn our history and how to change it, we are truly a crazy people. Well, let's look at the why's. Why is our world so broken? Well, it started in the beginning. If you're listening to or even listen to the first one to ten days of the Bible in a year timeline, the most common word that you hear in there outside of amen is broken. Because we are a broken people. Because we are sinners. And what sin does is it breaks our relationship not only with God, but with ourselves and with each other. That first sin outside the garden of Cain slaying his brother Abel isn't just a story to learn from, but it's something that each and every one of us live in our daily lives on a very common occurrence. We may not actually physically kill each other, but how many times do we gossip? How many times do we slander? How many times do we um, cast aspersions towards each other, tear each other down? Well, just because you didn't actually pull the trigger doesn't mean you didn't kill someone's character, but the Lord is telling us to do something different. And so, the struggle is, for the first 1,900 years after Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, really high highs, really low lows, and we're kind of in the midst of a downward slope. We always kind of look back and say, man, they had it so much better then, and we'll have it so much better in the future, But everyone throughout history kind of has high highs and low lows, depending on the context in which you are living. But let's look at the world post-World War II. Um, I think this will help us understand why our definition of love societally is so different from our definition of love when it comes to God, the virtue, and the church. So we had just gotten through the Great War, 1917, World War I. Um, We had finally brought peace, and then, yet again, we get thrown into worldwide this truly world war where everybody is on edge. We don't know what's going on. And so, immediately following the Second World War, immediately following the Great Depression and those times, we are in a world left with, how do we pick up the pieces? Millions and millions of people died during World War I and World War II. Some of the most unthinkable, unconscionable things happened in these wars where people looked at each other not as human but as less than. We see that very visible in the um, concentration camps in um, Nazi Germany. Having visited Birkenau and having visited Auschwitz and just seeing the conditions now 80 years later, it's like, man, I wouldn't want to live in that now, let alone back then. And then just all of the remnants of what had happened there, we see the worst of the worst of humanity. In that people were seen as less than. And then we come back home to a world that doesn't know how to really Live anymore? We've had all of these wars. Are we going to have a World War III? We've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've got all of these things going on. We've got the, the Korean War. We've got the Vietnam War. We're still in the midst of these fights that are not our fights, but are others' fights, and we want to help them, but at the same time, we want things from them. and And how do we look at this? And how do we live at the same time? There was a cultural revolution that was happening too, and this is the key point. In the midst of that cultural revolution that is post-apocalyptic in that the world is is completely different from how it was beforehand, there was an increase of not just a modernism, but of hedonism. Do you know what hedonism is? Basically, it is your number one priority is not virtue, is not love, it's do what you want, do what makes you feel good. Pleasure above everything. When we look at it in the context of two generations of war, death, destruction, carnage, it seems natural then that the pendulum swing that comes back is, how do we avoid pain? Well, what's the opposite of pain in our world? Pleasure. And so we have the sexual revolution that really kind of started in America in the 1960s, 1970s of what some of us are the products of. And in the midst of that sexual revolution, sex came out of the context of what it was really meant to be. We see the uptick of abortions. We see Roe v. Wade go up. We see the uptick of um, contraceptives being used societally across the board. And then we began to say, oh crap, we've gotten ourselves to a place where we don't know what comes next. How do you put the toothpaste back into the toothpaste bottle? In fact, we tried that when I was growing up in, um, in our religious education classes. They'd always have us do that example and that experiment to show us that you can't. If you ever empty out a toothpaste bottle, try and get everything back in there. It's impossible. It's impossible. But that's many times how we try to kind of reclose Pandora's box, so to speak, in our lives. We try and say, how do we get back to what was beforehand? We can't. It's not going to stop us from trying, it's not going to stop us from willing it and wanting it and trying everything that we can to get back to those moments, but it's impossible to go back in time. No matter what scientists say, no matter they're coming out with a back to the future four because they didn't get it right the first three times, I don't know. But they're trying to change current things by how do we fix it in the past, now, there's something that's important to look in, in that of people at least recognize we did something wrong in the past. Yes, that's a good place to start. The problem, though, is they want to change what happened, not what's happening. We can't change what happened. We can't change what will happen. We can only change what's happening today. And that is in this world where we struggle to understand the virtue of love, where holiness and piety are looked like, well, you're just dumb and don't know better. Where you hear the word prudence and you just think prude because it's taken a negative connotation to it, as have all of the four cardinal virtues. We look at those and say, no, these get us back to something that's important. They get us back to the understanding of the question of why do we live? What is our purpose in life? And ultimately, the purpose in life comes back to this theological virtue. You've heard me say it once. You've heard me say it a million times. Each and every one of us, our purpose in life is to be created in the image and likeness of God. That's out of our perspective. We can't make that happen. God already made that happen. You exist because God loves. Okay, so I'm creating the image and likeness of God. What then is my purpose? Your purpose is to embrace that love. In a sense, to see that, yes, I am deserving of that love of God. Not because of what I do, but because of who I am. And once we can then embrace it and verify it and validate it in our lives, love by definition cannot be held within. And the struggle is, as I think it was Tammy Wynette sang this song, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. That's part of the struggle. There is no wrong place to find love. But the world's love versus that self sacrificial love that God is calling us to are two completely different things. It's not that we're looking for love in all the wrong places, we're defining love in all the wrong definitions. And that's part of the struggle of the world that we live in. So our young kids don't learn love, they learn right and wrong. They learn conditional love. I will love you if. I will love you when. When you stop being such a pain in the butt, then I'll finally love you. And I've actually heard that going out in places like, you know why I don't love you because you always act wrong. It's like, oh my gosh, my heart breaks for that kid. We, int- we don't normally intentionally speak those things into existence. But how many times do our actions speak louder than our words? In fact, there were m- multiple generations where it was seen to be masculine to never utter the words, I love you. But then even societally, those three words have been used, abused, and used to elicit an emotion, a feeling. Yes, love is a feeling, it is an emotion, but if there's nothing behind it, it's fake. It's like cotton candy. What is cotton candy but sugar? that has a bunch of air between it. Well, I'd much rather have a three-musketeer bar that's going to give me some filling and give me some... "Ah!" than have that cotton candy that's going to get stuck in my beard and never go away. But why then is it when we come to things like the words, I love you, do we struggle to say them? Part of it is, what is love? What does it mean for someone to love someone? And societally, again, we struggle to comprehend. I love you so much that I would lay my life down for you. Normally, it's not what we mean when we say I love you. When we hear the word love, and I hear that question, what is love? My head goes to the Saturday Night Live skit from the Night at the Roxbury. With Will Ferrell and Chris Catan singing that song that is just ugh, cringeworthy. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Like, that's what we think of societally when we think of that question. What is love? Well, it's not about hurting. It's about giving. We teach our kids it is better to give than to receive, but then we want to receive. Gimme, 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 gimme. Kids learn that I want before they learn the I don't need or I need. And what's really just kind of terrifying in our world today, kids don't understand what they need. They know what they want, but they don't understand what they need. That's where you come in as parents, as adults, it is incumbent upon us to teach our kids the difference between want and need. I need a cell phone, Mom and Dad. No, you don't. I need an Xbox, a PS5, or whatever the new gaming thing is. I need it. No, you don't. But I won't be able to live without it. You're living without it now, so yes, you can. And so it comes to us to... Sometimes saying no, that discipline, we don't want to do it because many times, and we do the same thing as adults, when we are told no, our first reaction is the most anti-love reaction there is. It's either, why do you hate me? Or, I hate you, right? Why do you hate me? I just said you can't have McDonald's today. I don't hate you. Why do you hate me? You can have that extra bite of ice cream, but you're going to have a stomach ache, and you're going to ask me why your stomach hurts down the road. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. I'm trying to discipline you to show you right from wrong, to show you that too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Why do you hate me? I don't. But how many times have your kids said that to you? Has has anybody's kids never said they hate them? your kids have never said it, then you aren't loving enough. (laughs) That's that's not true. But I mean, normally, societally, I typically tell families, if your kids don't at least once a year tell you that they hate you, you're doing something wrong. Because societally, our kids are told you have to want, you have to want, you have to want. And if they are given everything they want, they aren't going to hate you. And so how do we then teach them disciplines? And, And if you guys are doing it great, awesome. Um, I, I, you kids are awesome. All the kids that are here are awesome. Okay, th- there we go. Well, and, and that's the thing is like, the, the kids have kind of learned, it's like, so if I say it out loud, and normally it's the, how do I pit mom versus dad? Did you guys ever play that game growing up? That in my house, mom was always the pushover and dad would always say no. So it's like, how do I get what I want out of this? Let me ask mom. And if she says, ask your dad, I say, hey, um, I went to mom and said I really want this, and she, she was fine with it as long as you're okay with it. That's not what I said. I said, ask your dad. Well, you didn't say no. And we begin to learn to really take the truth and bend it to getting out of what isn't real and instead getting what we want. As a kid, and I may have told this story before if I have, you're just going to hear it again, I always wanted a mohawk. I wanted a mohawk. It was the coolest thing back in the 70s and 80s before I was even born. Saw it on TV. I just wanted this, shh, I'm going to gel it up. It was going to be epic. My family always said no. In fact, my dad specifically said, you get a mohawk, find another place to sleep tonight. I mean, he was joking, of course. And so on my, I think it was my 19th birthday, or 20th birthday, my family was at Disneyland. I had to work at 6 o'clock in the morning. And so I said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You've always said I can't have a mohawk. It's my birthday. I can do what I want to. Or as the old song is, it's my party. I can cry if I want to. It's my birthday. I want a mohawk. I'm getting a mohawk. And so I go out, buy clippers, buy shaving cream, and I shave my head on the sides and have this mohawk in the middle. And I bicked it down, which to bick your hair is to take shaving cream and to use a bick razor and shave it down to the studs. What I didn't know at the time was I was also losing my hair because I was getting older. In my family, we use it, lose it at a young age. And so my hair never grew back after I got a mohawk. And so when my hair grows out, you, you can see it if you touch it now, I have a strip of hair right here where the mohawk was and nothing around it. To this day, 17 years later, God reminds me, on a daily basis, there's a reason your parents said no. Now, it wasn't because I'd go bald if I didn't listen to my parents, but that was the outcome. It was, I'm called to honor my father and my mother even when I don't like them saying no because they have a reason behind it. For me, the lesson I learned was, honor your father and your mother or you too will go bald like Father Danny. Now, I finally made it past that point where, like, I, I looked into getting Rogaine, and no, you got to make the hair grow back, and they have got all these newfangled things. It's like, I just don't want to mess with it anymore. I shave my head every six weeks, trim my beard at the same time, and this takes five minutes every six weeks. Many of you guys take more than that every morning. It's like, you take more than five minutes on your hair? <laughs> A, it doesn't show. B, really? Uh, okay, no. But many times, we put all of those things into things that don't really matter, So I thought the world had ended because I had gone bald at the age of 20 or 21. I look back and say, ah, wisdom. Bald men look very wise. Grow the beard, look even wiser. Lose your eyesight. Beard, no hair, and glasses distinguished. Now, that's not true, but I like to think so. When I look in the mirror, it's like, yeah sexy. That's not what I think. But 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 that's many times what the world, that's what we want to say when we look at ourselves in the mirror, right? We want to see, ah, yeah, that's what perfection is. But then we look at the imperfections that are on our faces like, ah, oh. oh, that's gray. Oh, no. So I've got gray hairs now growing in and a patch right down here, and it's like, oh, don't look at my gray hair. I'm too young to have gray hair. And then Deacon Bill's like, look at my gray hair! And I'm like, live it, man. Kirk, too? You guys are like, bam. And I'm like, no. Like I'll get like some, some scragglies back here, and it's like, no, we're going to shave that because I just have to have a little bit of ego still. And... But many times, all of this to say, that we don't always understand the why and that's okay but it's an important question for us to ask did you notice growing up that curiosity was normally disciplined if you had too many questions your teachers your parents your priests would say stop asking questions did anybody else notice that as a kid or is that just me as that one kid in class that was the annoying kid in class Because I would consistently, I got detention in fourth and fifth grade on a weekly, if not daily basis, because I asked too many questions. Like, in seminary, my professors would limit how many questions I could ask. You get three questions per class, Danny. Three questions. If you have any more, write them down in the margins. We'll talk about them after class. Little did they know that they they were having two extra classes for every class. And that really started in me thinking, do I just not get it? Am I dumb? Am I stupid? Am I not good enough? It's like, no, I'm curious. And because of that, I want to know the why behind a lot of things. Why does the world work how it does? Why do we just exploit young people? Why do we exploit old people? Where is this understanding of the dignity of the human person from conception to natural death? How can people actually look at that and see it's a bad thing? because many people in our world don't agree that because you exist you have dignity in fact i've had multiple times as a priest people have gotten violently abrasive with me how dare you talk about this person being a good person it's like well, i don't know them i know they're created in the image likeness of god but they're doing something wrong father it doesn't stop god from loving them or when I tell people that I go to the prison, and I do ministry there, and some of my favorite ministry is at the prison in Granite and the prison um, in Sayre. I go in, and these men are there, and they're all sinners. They've all done things. The difference between them and us, they got caught, for many of them, and that we just didn't get caught. Oh, but Father, there are some really, really bad people in prison. Have you not looked in the parking lot? There are some really, really bad people not in prison. But just because they do actions that aren't good doesn't merit a lack of love, a lack of charity, caritas, from us to them. And that's part of the struggles is when I talk about politics in homilies or in classes, that's why I say you can't be over here and you can't be over here, you have to be right here. Because both of our main political parties here in the United States push it too far, some see the dignity of the human person as long as you were born. Some see the dignity of the human person as long as one thing or the other. But no, as Catholics, we're called to be in the middle. How do we respect the sanctity of life, the dignity of the human person, from the moment that you were conceived until the moment that you die naturally? That as Catholics, we're against the death penalty. As Catholics, we are against abuse. We are against um, homelessness in the sense of we should help each other get out of those situations. We are against the idea of poverty in the sense of people should be able to have those things that we as Americans have seen just as, a, well, yeah, of course you get this. You get, you, you get, what is it, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. There are some people that, don't, that aren't able to pursue happiness because they are so busy trying to, to protect their lives. We don't experience it all the time because depending on where we're from, depending on our different circumstances in life, it's different. I learned this a lot in my last assignment at Corpus Christi. I I learned that as a white man in the South, I had different inherent values societally than many of my parishioners grew up with. And it's like, no, I didn't. And then they begin to tell me their stories. It's like, oh huh, I never had to deal with that. And I, that even, never even crossed my mind. In fact, um, I went with my deacons um, and their wives and my um, staff about six summers ago now to Orlando to the National Black Catholic Congress, again, being one of the only white people there. And it was fascinating the things that I didn't even recognize. One of the, t- one of the keynote speakers was coming out and talking about the common experience in in, in that community of when you're driving and you see lights in your rearview mirror. I'm not picking on you, Daryl, I promise. He's one of our officers. But but when you see lights in your rearview mirror and I said, man, I hate that. I'm always like, oh, crap, that caught me. Or, oh, man, was I really speeding? Those are the first things that pop in my head. It's like, I'm getting a ticket. How do I talk my way out of this one? For many of my parishioners, it was no sudden movements. How do I make sure that I make it home alive today? And it's like, what? And this is this is before the George Floyd incident. This is before the whole Black Lives Matter push and movement. But it's one of those like, I didn't even that would never be my what do you mean I just want to make it home alive today? And then we see things that have happened with people that push things too far. Just this last week, we saw some African-American officers that pushed things too far. That it's not just because of the color of our skin that we sin, but sometimes we look at the colors of others' skin and we justify sin. Um, couple, about a year and a half ago, um, I had preached about immigration in the sense of whether people are here coming over the border legally or illegally, as Americans, we have the right, as any country does, to protect your borders. But whether someone is here legally or illegally, they are still created in the same image and likeness of God. And I had people just up in arms. How dare you preach against immigration, Father? I didn't preach against immigration. I preached for the dignity of the human person. Oh, but Father, these people are illegals. No, their action is societally and governmentally illegal. They are not illegal. Oh, but they're aliens over here. It's like they're from the same planet as you and me, although you may be from a different planet, so you may be the alien here. But we many times look at things that we don't like and don't agree with and put this black cloud over it. And it's like, guys, where's this coming from? If we truly embrace and understand the why of the love of God, those aren't even issues that we look at. How many times did we hear on social media, on the news, that the virus of COVID is all because of people in China? It's the Chinese fault. It's like, no, it's not. That could have happened anywhere. Oh, but it happened in that one village and it broke out from there, Father. Don't you know that? It's like that's neither here nor there. We couldn't have changed that now. I mean, have you seen the the biological weapons that everybody else works on too? Theirs just got out of control. Just because they're from a different place that we don't like, or politically it's in an advantageous place, many times we dehumanize the same way as what happened to the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. That's an important link to look at, my brothers and sisters. Because when we dehumanize each other, when we say you are less than, when we say you are three-fifths of a person south of the Mason-Dixon line, what we are doing is saying, God can't love you. And so when people then become institutionalized with that mentality of, you aren't deserving of love, we come to the world that we live in today. You have to gain love. You have to earn love. No, you don't. But in our world, unfortunately, that is our mode of operation. Now, respect, that's something different. Some places we do have to gain respect. We have to earn respect because someone coming in off of I-40 and walking in the room and saying, I'm going to teach you everything you've done wrong. So I'm going to be like, get out. I mean, they're probably looked at the same way that Jesus was in today's gospel, where he goes home and they're like, who do you think you are? And he says, well, a prophet is welcome anywhere but his home. I learned that lesson the hard way as well, that one of the hardest conversations to have as a priest is, I'm a priest, but I can't preach to my family because they know my past. They know me as a little kid. It's like, Shut up. You know what you did as a kid. It's like, yeah, but I've learned from then. I've grown from then. But in your own families, that's sometimes a struggle as well. You notice? When you go home, you have to almost earn a different respect than when you're in your marriage, than when you're at church, than when you're in professional life, because they're really different cultures. That's one of the struggles that I have as a priest is, I want to be seen as father, but I also want to see as, be seen as Danny, but I'm still trying to find that boundary of I can't take off the Father Danny hat. That's not a thing. It's the, just like when we were baptized, an indelible mark was put on our soul. When I was ordained, an indelible mark was placed on my soul that I am set aside, that you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Forever doesn't end for those that are curious. <laughs> But for some reason, because we are limited by space and time, because our understanding of life is so limited, we struggle to, as I was told as a kid, put the shoe on the other foot or walk a mile in another person's shoes. One of the best things that they did for me in seminary was not allow me, because they did this for everybody, to have just my own social experience. So we had one weekend where we went and lived with the homeless, we went and fed the homeless. We had one weekend where we went to um, a very Spanish area, Spanish-speaking area in Omaha, Nebraska and lived with families that didn't speak English and, and learned the food and learned the culture and learned the experience. That's where I learned gringo <laughs> for the first time. It's, like, it's funny if you ever go out to eat Mexican food with me, and I use that in quotations because when I go eat Mexican food, I typically get fajitas. Minus onions, minus peppers. They're like, so you want the meat? Yes. What would you like on the setup? Well, (laughs) this is what people are like, really, Father? No sour cream, no pico de gallo, no guacamole. So you want beans, rice, cheese, and lettuce. Winner. That is the most white thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth, Father. It's what my stomach likes. I don't know what to tell you. But I love Mexican food. Done my way. Because that's a very American thing. That we try and westernize things or we try to personalize things the way we like them. I can eat anything, anywhere that someone pr- provides for me. I will if I go to someone's house and I look at it it's like, oh, I've gotten to where I will say a prayer. Lord, help me to digest. Help me to not make a face. Help me to at least be outwardly appreciative of what is set in front of me because my palate is so bland I was 28 before I heard before I had my first full bowl of soup it's a, it's a texture thing I'm like no I don't want soup soup's disgusting I was 27 before I had cooked carrots and could stomach them because as a little kid there was that I had one babysitter, that that's all she would prepare, was cook carrots, cook carrots, cook carrots. And just the smell of them made me nauseous. I'm past that finally. But those are things that are taught to us sometimes as kids, that it's literally thrown down our throat, sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally, that we have to kind of learn out of. And so when it comes to the virtues, specifically those virtues that are the hinge virtues of every other good thing we're called to do in our lives, we have to, before we can learn what they are, unlearn what we thought they were. That when we talk about love, we have to, and and I'm going to continue every weekend and almost every homily, talking about what love is. Because we don't believe it. And, And I say that because our actions truly do speak louder than our words. How many times... Do we struggle to forgive each other? Father, you will not believe what this person to me, did to me. I can never forgive them. I can never forgive them. I said, I understand that, but you got to try. you got to start somewhere. You, you've got to start with that reality that they may not be deserving of your forgiveness, but neither are you of God's. And because of that, And the truth of that, we are called to forgive and love each other, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. But God's going to offer it to us anyways. I talk a lot about the perfect prayer that God gives us. I start every class off with that, our Father. Because many times we gloss over the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many times do we condemn ourselves with that perfect prayer that God has given to us? Because we are not incapable, but unwilling to forgive those who have sinned against us. Father, if you only knew what this person did to me, to my family, it doesn't matter. And I don't say that to be flippant about it. Christ tells us time and time again to turn the other cheek. Oh, but Father, that's easier said than done. Said I know. When he was on the cross and said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they have done. I can't imagine that amount of forgiveness. I struggle to forgive myself for some of the dumb things I did as a kid. (laughs) Yet you forgive them for beating you literally within an inch of your life and then taking your life from you. As your life is draining from you, you forgive them. Man, that's hard, but that's the goal. That's what we're called to strive to when we talk about this virtue of love. There's that total self-sacrificing gift, self-sacrificing, not self-aggrandizing, not selfish, but how do I will the good of the other? Why do we see divorce rates as high as they are? Because most times when people get married, it's not about true, authentic love. It's about emotion and about feeling. And as we've seen, that can only get you so far. Some people are not called to the vocation of marriage. Some people that get married are not called to the vocation of marriage. And that's a tragedy. A, that they aren't called to it, because that sucks. (laughs) But B, that they are wanting to fight through that so much so that they willingly sometimes do harm to their spouse because they'd rather get married and not be alone than have to deal with their own demons? How many times do we use escapism as a medicine? We probably don't think about that. For me, I learned this in seminary. I learned a lot in seminary. It was eight years, kind of had to. I'm a slob. I've done everything I can intellectually, intentionally to get past being a messy person. I'm just a messy person. Like, I have a housekeeper at the house who texts me the day before she comes every week. And I always get up two hours before my alarm or two hours before I know she's going to be there and I clean before she comes. Because I'm ashamed at how messy and how big of a slob I am sometimes. What I've found, though, is behind the why of why am i messy is a really important fact growing up i needed my space i'm a big proponent and big fan of superman so if you're a batman fan get out now <laughs> but as a superman fan where did superman go when he needed to be alone when he needed to kind of learn about himself who went to his fortress of solitude What I've learned most people don't want to go into a messy room. I realized in seminary the reason that I am a slob is because that's the only place that I can go and I know I don't have to put on a fake agenda, where I don't have to try to be something different, try to be something more. It's my comfort bubble. My car is the same way. People are like, "Father, you got a four-passenger car." Yeah, there's four seats, but nobody wants to ride in here because I live in my car. I've got extra alb. I've got a travel mask kit. I've got um, because I grew up in North Dakota. I've got a, um, a disaster kit. So, like in case I blow a tire between here and the city, I've got um, a sleeping bag, pillow, um, clothes, food. But then I've also got just a bunch of random crap. I've got a bunch of books, got a bunch of things I just haven't thrown away, a bunch of trash, which I clean out every week. It's like, how does this get, how does this keep piling up? I clean it out every three days. How does this happen? And it's because sometimes when we aren't intellectually and intentionally trying to move forward, we just exist. And that's how it is with everything in our lives. When we aren't being intentional about it, many times we just exist, but if, you, if you've ever been around water, stagnant water is not a good thing. What does stagnant water bring? Disease. It's the same way in our lives. That when we are being stagnant in faith, when we are being stagnant in virtue, when we are unintentionally living our lives, what does it bring and what does it breed? Disease. Sin. Sin. And that's many times how we live our lives. That's why I thought it was so important this year for us to talk about these virtues. Because if one person learns something that they then take out into the world and practice differently because of this, even if only one of you do, 100% worth it. If one life is changed, it makes it all worth it. If one person hears something that makes them look or change or feel differently or act differently, It's all worth it. But how do we see that as an opportunity in our own lives? How do we have those conversations with our kids, with our spouses, with our siblings, with our parents of, I love you. You're a giant pain in the ass most of the time, but I love you. Whatever I've done to you that has made you ever feel harm, upset, anger, I'm sorry. I apologize. And I will do my best to forgive you for anything you have done against me. That's why you'll notice about three or four times a year, either during my homily or at the end of Mass, I will ask for forgiveness. Because there's sometimes I unintentionally do things that really push people the wrong way never my intention. But when you have more than three people in a room, it's really hard to not piss someone off sometimes. Because again, saying no sometimes can be that one thing that pushes someone over the edge, even if you say no for their good. And that's one of the things that I struggle with a lot as a pastor, as a priest. Sometimes people will come to me with great ideas. It's like, no, we aren't going to do that. No, we can't do that. But why not, Father? This is my idea. I'm not saying no because it's your idea. I'm not saying no because of you. I'm, not saying, I'm saying no because it's not the way we're progressing. And my hope, my goal, is that everything that we do is to progress in faith, hope, ultimately, in love and charity for each other. That sometimes it's like, well, Father, why can't we do this? Well, you can do it somewhere else, can't you? Well, yeah. Then why do we need to do it? Because we want to do it here, huh? You didn't listen to my question. Why do we need to do it here? And so, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, a little bit more about that um, next week. The kind of the difference between the needs and the wants. Really looking at um, the virtue of love. But before we leave, um, we're going to pray. Any questions? Don't forget also, three weeks from today is Ash Wednesday already. So start thinking and talking to your family about what you're going to do for Ash Wednesday, what you're going to do for Lent. Um, Maybe this year is is the year that you guys as a family do something intentionally. And I say that purposely instead of giving something up, because giving something up is not the purpose of Lent. The purpose of Lent is to grow. And sometimes that means taking on something else. So maybe it's the, instead of doing this, we're going to do this. How do we do that for those 40 days that then help us to continue those things? If you want to give up coffee, you want to give up soda, you want to give up sweets, that's all all in good. But if on Easter Sunday, all you do is gorge on them, what have you really done? Yes, you've, you've, you've sacrificed and you've fasted for that time. That's good. But if you don't use that as an opportunity to offer up and lift up prayer, what's the point? So we'll talk a little bit about that next week as well. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this evening to talk about um, you, to talk about you who are love, who embrace us with your love, who offer your love to us unconditionally. We pray that you may continue to work in our minds, our hearts, and in our very lives. Give us the intentionality of faith inspired by hope, rooted in your love. We may always seek to love as you do, to give as you give, to sacrifice for each other out of love, not out of need. We pray that you may watch over um, all of these um, parishioners that are here this evening, all of those who are seeking to delve deeper in their faith. We also ask for um, safe travels um, as there's uh, possible bad weather coming in this evening, um, that you may keep everybody on the road safe, um, and that you may watch over us all. We ask all of these things through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys.